0: As this episode airs, the Monocle team will have just wrapped up our first live in-person three-day summit of the year, the Monocle Chiefs Conference at Suvretta House in St. Moritz. From the woman running a third-generation furniture powerhouse to the man mitigating disaster on the front lines, it was clear from the energy on stage, the sharing of notes over coffee and the dinnertime debates that this meeting of curious minds could not have been simulated online. Amongst the speakers was an industry leader who knows all too well what this year's disruptions have done to the global events industry and why being in the room is so important. Directing the world's leading art fair edition since 2012, Art Basel's Marc Spiegler joined me a little earlier at Monocle's Zurich Hub at Dufourstrasse 90 to unpack a somewhat tumultuous year for the art world. From strategy and communications to the collectors, galleries and artists they serve, Mark shares his first-hand experience on how restrictions on crowds and gatherings can rapidly alter the course of a business. And of course, how Art Basel plans to keep moving forward. I'm Tyler Brulé, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle24. Mark, we're standing in Zurich where... in the hub of switzerland this should have been a time when the rescheduled version of art basel uh, should have been getting underway right now you speak to many leaders and they say that my business it's impossible you know we're the hardest hit in switzerland there's quite a significant lobby there's there are very loud voices around the events business Uh, and of course events are very important to this country as a place which hosts and of course (laughs) there's very significant global gatherings that happen here I'm wondering for the man at the helm of Art Basel, uh, how difficult uh, is it for you? How does it feel where where we sit? You know, many months after you should have had, of course, your key headline event in the rival city to where we're standing now. I'm not trying to win the Schadenfreude Olympics here, but it's hard for me to imagine an
1: industry which is harder hit, and specifically an organization within an industry that's harder hit than Art Basel is, because not only are we dependent upon large numbers of people gathering but we're dependent upon large numbers of people gathering from all over the world and specifically we're dependent upon wealthy collectors often older being willing to travel for pleasure from all over the world and that is you know at a time when wealthy new yorkers are moving their kids out to the hamptons for you know for the foreseeable future it's going to take us a long time to get back and yes we benefit from an environment in switzerland where The regulators are trying to make things happen we've had an extremely mellow lockdown i mean not as mellow as sweden where they didn't lock down at all but we have the possibility to do major events but if i was running a swiss only fair if i was running a swiss affair for swiss collectors with swiss galleries we would be in a much different position than we are you know and i think in a sense um as with so many things in life your greatest strength is also your greatest potential weakness, you know, and and the reality is that the the strength of Art Basel is that we have been a place where people come from all over the world, you know, to do these exchanges that drive the art world forward, you know, whether they're intellectual or financial. And in the absence of that, we have to figure out how to keep this network vibrant and stay connected to it until we can really make that happen again.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of people who will be You know listening who've been I'm sure sort of commenting in on your world they think about Art Basel they think about of course maybe some of the other large headline events in the arts and culture space and they're probably saying listen you know these poor people in Basel uh you know they're, they're making up a bit of a sort of woe is me moment when everyone's talking about doing things digitally uh and I'm sure lots of people are saying well why can't you just flip open your laptop everyone's talking about how empowered they are by all things digital why are you any different? I mean, from our perspective, the struggle is real. And it's, it's because the core of
1: what we do, the core of what we've delivered for our galleries are great events, which bring together the best galleries in the world with the best collectors in the world and create this kind of crowd effect. You know, the, the crowd effect that Elias Canetti was talking about in Mass and Macht, or Crowds and Power, which is unreplicable online. The digital was already part of the art world. People are already selling a lot of things via JPEGs ahead of the fair, via, you know, over social media, et cetera. And so that hasn't changed. It has accelerated in the way that many trends have accelerated. And yes, people are selling much more art digitally than they ever did before. Unfortunately, they're not selling much more art than they were before. And the reality is this. In our market, which is not a commodifiable market, you know, we don't have the kind of benefit that Amazon has where you just kind of perfect the flywheel and move forward. In our market, people need to fall in love with artworks, they need to fall in love with artists, they need to fall in love with collecting art. Those are things which are very hard to do digitally. Um, predominantly what's being sold right now is work by artists who the collector knows from galleries, who the collector knows. You know, there are very few people who are buying artists they don't know from galleries they don't know personally. And even more dramatically, uh, you don't have people who I think are starting to collect in this environment. Collectors traditionally start to collect by personally engaging with art. You know, They are people of means who might have a little bit of cultural passion and then they go to a great biennial, they go to a great art fair, they go to a great exhibition, they meet people who are already impassionate collectors. And they become part of this world, and they want to become part of this world, and that's how they become collectors. And I don't think that's happening now. And the longer it's not happening, the harder it's going to be for us to recover from this. What's happening right now in the digital space is significant, and it's significantly improved because people are learning how to do things or trying experiments or watching other people's experiments, learning from their failures, learning from their successes. I think the metaphor I would use is that we're like a car that's coming over one of the Alpine passes that you and I love so much and we've run out of gas. And we're still moving because we're going downhill. And the reason we're going downhill is because for so many years, so many people traveled all over the world and met collectors and discovered artists. But at a certain moment, when the road flattens out, you're still out of gas. And so I think there's almost a deceptive quality to the successes that people are having digitally, which doesn't mean that real things aren't happening. I would just say that we shouldn't underestimate how much of what is happening digitally is based upon the physical interactions that people had in the last years.
0: You touched on the collectors, the fact that, of course, they're not able to attend. What does it mean for the artists, though? And let's put the dealers to one side. But if I'm a recent graduate, is there even sort of this a pause moment, something which is really sort of suspended? I mean, what what does it mean for someone who is just getting into it, probably just getting into the groove if they don't have a major event? It's a very tough time for
1: artists in general. I think there's this kind of Panglossian view that, you know, artists are used to being alone in their studios anyway. So confinement doesn't change anything or, wow, they can finally work more because they don't have to run around to openings and biennials and art fairs. And, and, you know, I think like everything around this, that's people seeing only the very small silver lining on a very big dark cloud. And the very big dark cloud for the young artists you were talking about before is that those first shows, the discoveries, you know, at the master's show, at the master's thesis show, you know, is not happening. And, you know, the the young galleries that would identify young artists and then bring them to fairs, it's not happening in the same way. It's, again, you don't have that physical interaction between the type of collector who loves new artworks, who is, to use Charles Saatchi's term, a neophiliac. And, you know, the art world is full of neophiliacs, you know, it's a bad moment them because they're not seeing art in the same way
0: if we rewind to the start of the year of course we had the COVID story making news it was something coming out of china it was popping up here and there there was this sense in europe that okay it'll probably never reach here and if it does it'll be contained like many other things what were those first cues what was, the, what, was what was just the, the feeling that was happening you know, in basel at that time with your colleagues in hong kong thinking about this Ironically enough, for someone who has traveled very little in the last six months,
1: I'll answer this question in the story of two trips. One is, I went to Hong Kong in January, and you were starting to see headlines from mainland China coming through. Um, But our main concern at the time was what might happen around the political protests and how that might disrupt the fair or not disrupt the fair. And I left Hong Kong, I think on the 19th of January, feeling quite confident about the show, feeling confident that the city was behind us, that the region was behind us, and this was based upon data from our VIP teams. And within two weeks, we had been forced to cancel the show because of COVID-19. At the time, I thought of this as a regional issue in the same way that SARS had been primarily a regional issue. You know, the idea that it would become a global pandemic didn't really hit me until later. And then in March, early March, I went to New York for the Armory show. The Armory is when things started really kicking off in northern Italy when it really came to Europe and when suddenly you couldn't take a train from northern Italy to Austria or to parts of Switzerland or you couldn't take a flight from northern Italy to anywhere almost you know and certainly not to the United States and i went to new york and i felt like a visitor from the future because i went to new york and at the beginning of the week people were doing the funny handshakes and the foot taps. And people were acting like this was a new dance that they were learning, but they weren't understanding how radically it was going to affect them. And a week later, by the time I left, New York had declared a state of emergency. But at the beginning of the week, things were completely different than by the end of the week. And I think somewhere in that week where we'd already had the show disrupted from, you know, in Hong Kong or canceled in Hong Kong, The Louvre was closed. Northern Italy was closed. Europe was shutting down. It was just starting to come to America. I had the sense that this was not going to be an Asian thing, that this was going to be really a global issue in the way that we've never faced, that none of us have ever faced. You know, even, I mean, if you look back, even the world wars were much more regionalized than this pandemic has been. I think society has never faced anything that's so pervasively affected virtually every part of the world. To come back to the third part of your question— I think it pretty clearly. I remember quite distinctly when we were debating what to do about the Basel show, I think. And I was on my balcony, you know, looking out. I just said, you know, if a single person dies because we decided to go forward with this, I and my entire team will never want, will never be able to deal with that. And I think there's this moment where you say, like, there's obviously, there's a thing that's bigger than the business and there is a responsibility. And, you know, at a certain point, we'll all have to take risks. But I think you just have the responsibility to lead to lead by example, it's completely redefined in a way what it's meant to be a market leader. Because I think to be a market leader before this meant to show sort of confidence and to be this kind of ivory tower and to be the castle that every gallery wants to be access to and, and all this kind of thing. And I think like so many people, like so many organizations, you know, we've had to redefine ourselves. When we canceled the Basel show, Roughly half the galleries were saying, if you do it, we'll come with you. Um, But I also think as the market leader, you have to say, yeah, we could do it, but it doesn't really make sense. We don't believe we will be successful here. This moment is not the moment to be opaque and arrogant and unsympathetic. I think this is a moment where people expect their leaders to feel their pain, to express their doubts, and to be transparent about how they're trying to make decisions. It was a real shift for us as a Swiss organization to pivot to a new way of talking to our market. I remember writing this letter. And because I I tend to write all the letters that I sign, I remember writing this letter and sending it to my team and saying, here's my draft. I want your feedback. I'm aware the tone is completely different than any letter we've ever sent before. And that's intentional.
0: Did that feel different for you? Because you said in a way you were sort of laying everything out there, you were raising questions, you didn't have answers for those questions. As you said, it was quite un-Swiss in many ways, uh, but it was just the natural way to go, or was also, did you have a comms team working around this saying, this is a bit of a departure maybe, Mark, from what we've done in the past, the way organizations like this, particularly within these borders behave, uh, or was it just, yeah, spontaneous, this was the way you you had to, to lead at that moment? I'm, I have the good fortune of being surrounded by people who are not only highly intelligent, at
1: an IQ level, but also at the EQ level. And so it was a departure though, of course, for all of us. And to say like, are we ready to lay it all out there in a way that we've never done it before? But I think it was clear that this is what we needed to do. And, and I think it was it was, in a way, you know, I, th- I think in, in, in general, I think, you know, the strongest people are those who are able to lay their fears and their doubts out there without feeling like somehow it weakens them. So I think from that perspective, you just have to embrace that. You have to just say like nowadays, the strongest leaders are not those who are working in this kind of command and control, alpha male, I know everything, I can do it all, don't worry. You know, it's nothing, everything's gonna be fine. Like that is the fastest way to be completely disbelieved by your market and your audience. And I think nowadays being strong, showing that you're listening, making tough decisions, We've made a lot of decisions that from a business standpoint are very difficult. You know, things like, you know, refunding fees to our exhibitors, um, things like saying if we cancel, there will be no risk to you, you know, just stick with us, but not at any risk to you, which is a new kind of thing. But also we see that that's what you have to do as a market leader. You know, you have to take care of the market the way the market is taking care of you. Because if you don't, then you become, you're not, it's not a partnership with the galleries. It's an oppositional kind of thing. Then you're just a landlord.
0: Let's stay on communications for a moment. When you survey the way people are approaching their internal and external comms, uh, when you spin the dial around and look at what's happening on television, how are you reading the, the state of media at the moment? I mean, and of course, we should probably say this as well. You have a foundation as a journalist, so you know. I guess there's two things. There's one, you know, how you present, and and of course, and and the interpretation that comes along with how people see what you're doing. But also just when you when you look at the current media landscape, what's your take on things right now? I mean, I would say
1: that the media has done what you expected to do, which is to look for the news story. And I was a journalist for 15 years, and obviously I think the story is much more interesting if you say these are the 25 things that COVID-19 are going to change forever within our society versus telling what I would say is the real story, which is these are the things that were going to happen anyway, but that now are happening in a much more accelerated way. I don't buy the notion that people are going to stop traveling. I mean, all you have to do is look at people's Instagram feeds from Mykonos and Saint-Tropez and Spain, and you see people are traveling as soon as they can. You know, people are going to clubs and all this kind of thing. And I think we're not going to see this kind of Greta Thunberg shift. I think as soon as people feel safe, they will continue to travel in the way that they always have, because human beings are curious by definition, and they like to be in different places. They like to breathe a different air. I think the media is probably exaggerating the permanent effects of COVID-19, especially those that would not have happened otherwise. You know, I think if you're a business leader, what you really have to look at is not what's happening right now and how do I pivot around that, how do I adapt to that, but what's going to happen once we have a vaccine or more likely a cure? So the question is, what does the future look like then? Will art fairs look significantly different in the future than they do now? I think only to the extent that the market itself has been affected in irrevocable ways during this period. Because I think fundamentally, people will still want to see art. People still want to meet gallerists. People still want to meet collectors. And, and all these things will, will continue. It's an inherently social market. But I think what will shift is sort of behind the scenes. You know, I don't anticipate that I will ever go and sit at a desk five days a week. I don't anticipate that I will fly in committee members from all over the world for a six-hour meeting. You know, we've done those meetings on Zoom. I do anticipate that for the really more complex, longer meetings, we'll still want to have things face-to-face.
0: Mark, do you think there's too much short-termism? If I am a, a CFO uh, and I'm having a conversation uh, with the rest of my leadership colleagues, do you think there's just there's too much of a drive to erect special walls, be that rethinking classrooms, and actually making a number of, let's say, permanent fixes right now that you know we might realize in six months here you know, that was was money wasted. There, there seems to be so much in terms of direction that really sort of makes people panic. And I was looking at something the other day talking about, you know, the great rethink of hotels, and that they're going to have to be bigger, or they're going to have to be crossed, all of these different things. But yet, in keeping has been with us for a long time. You know, people have been on coaching horses, staying at the same types of inns for millennia almost. And suddenly, because of something which has been with us for, well, half a year now, that we're we're totally going to rethink all of these different sectors. And I'm wondering what you make of that. So
1: especially if I was the CFO, and it's my job to be careful with the company's money, I would say, let's not invest any money in things which are very transitional. You know, I don't, I think it's, better to keep people at home for another six months than to create an office environment which will be unnecessary and frankly unproductive once the situation is behind us in whatever way it turns out to be behind us. I think it makes a lot of sense to invest money now in projects and initiatives that will make sense afterwards. You know, We are, for example, investing heavily in our digital spaces. We're doing experiments now in terms of the online viewing rooms, we're pushing forwards with other ideas that we think will make sense afterwards you know but i think you don't want to get skittish you know i think to use the analogy that comes from skiing you know if you're skiing quite quickly and you suddenly hit an ice patch the worst thing you can do is overreact the best thing you can do is to bend your knees so you can absorb more flex more force and just go over it you know the sudden movement is by definition the most dangerous thing that you can do in this kind of perilous situation, which doesn't mean you don't have to move quickly, but you shouldn't just move quickly. I think you have to move quickly where it's absolutely necessary and not move at all where it isn't necessary. You know, what can we learn now? You know, we've learned to be more of a content organization. We've been forced to be more of a content organization because we can't do fair to so stay in touch with our market. You know, we've learned to do digital-only art market events when originally we planned to do them in parallel to our existing fairs. We've seen our clients, our client galleries, you know, do studio tours with their artists, which a studio tour used to be a thing that was saved for the best collectors or museum directors. And now, if you talk to the collectors in far-flung places, you know, in if you're a collector in Peru or Jakarta, You're not doing studio tours in the same way that someone who lives in New York or Los Angeles is, but now you can. And so I think, you know, we have to see this also as a moment to test things and push things forward.
0: Is there a danger, Mark, of demystifying the brand? Because part of it is about, did you end up going to Hong Kong? Were you in Miami? Is there a danger by opening things up too much, making it almost too transparent that there's, yeah, I guess some of the the mystery gets gets eroded. That's not just Art Basel, that can, that's all kinds of brands. I don't think so,
1: to be honest. Because in addition to what I was talking about before, where seeing art in person, meeting galaxies in person is a very different thing. Meeting other collectors in person is a very different thing. There's a limit to how much you can do digitally. And I think in a way, you know, we've been putting artworks online from every fair in our online catalog for at least four years. There's something like 40,000 plus artworks from previous fairs, and they went online before the fair. And that didn't stop people from coming. In fact, our attendance rose and rose and rose. I mean, I think the analogy that I think about in this context is music. Musicians who have strong social media feeds, who do live streams, don't have fewer people coming to their concerts, they have more people coming to the concerts. And I think as long as what you're doing is a legitimately compelling live event to the degree that it can't be digitized, when you do digitize it, you only make it more compelling to show up. You only get more people excited about it. I mean, one of the things I can point to in the more than 12 years I've been at Basel is that we've really pushed forward on the digital in a lot of ways. And it's never hurt our events. You know, we've never felt like fewer people were coming. If anything, more people are coming. But the other thing is this. We're never going to get every major international collector to come to our fairs. Fact. And that's okay. But it would be great if in the future, because of everything we've learned and everything our clients have learned during this period, we will have a better experience for the collectors who can't make it not so good an experience that they won't feel FOMO because you still want them to feel FOMO, but a good enough experience that they might be more willing to buy art. I'll give you an example. We're introducing in our upcoming online viewing room, uh, which will open on September 23rd, a live chat feature which will allow collectors to interact with galleries. The galleries can put video out. That's something that I can imagine we'll keep once we have fairs again because that means that someone can sit in their booth when things are slow, and interact with collectors from all over the world. You know, the idea of, of layering another level of experience on top of a compelling physical experience is my goal and something I believe in. I've never believed that the digital endangers the physical.
0: Just, uh, Mark, very quickly before we go, you're sitting in a country where there are forces, it seems, who want events to, to happen, as we were just yeah. discussing a bit earlier. Uh, the Swiss really want to be on this front, but you've, as you said, you've done even experiments to see how it will, how it will happen. I guess one part of this as well is, you know, how, how long could it go on without you actually holding physical fairs right now? In order to answer that
1: question, I would have to be not only an expert in live events in the art world, but also an expert in politics and medicine and economics. And there are a lot of people who are setting themselves up to be that kind of expert, and I'm not going to be one of those people. I mean, I don't know how soon we'll be able to do large-scale events in Switzerland. I hope it's sooner than later and we will certainly try to do them as as quickly as as it's possible but we are in a in a in an extremely volatile moment where the medical news changes all the time where there are steps forward but also steps back and i think it, a lot of it depends obviously on whether there's a vaccine or a cure that emerges and in the absence of that i think whether there are safety measures that are widely accepted and quite effective and of course the initial fairs, you know, people will have to wear masks and there will be contact tracing, perhaps temperature checks. And that's okay. You know, that, that doesn't make it impossible, I think. But, you know, we're not going to wait until it can be exactly as the fairs were in 2019. But we have to wait until the moment where our galleries feel like they're ready to do it. Because Art Basel is known for having the best art in the world, but we don't have any art ourselves. It has to come with the galleries. And the galleries have to feel confident that it will work.
0: Just like 2020's news cycle, the pace of change for the global events industry is fast, as we all know too well. Even at our own conference, opening and closing borders meant amendments were being made up until the last minute so that the show could go on. Since Mark and I caught up in Zurich, the Art Basel team made the difficult decision to keep the doors closed to a sea of international collectors, artists and gallerists, for December's Miami Beach edition. Mark and I got a chance to catch up one more time on the thought process and impact of another cancellation.
1: In a lot of ways, the conversation around the cancellation of Art Balls on Miami Beach was very similar to that around the previous two cancellations. You know, you're weighing up a wide range of factors. One, has to do with the market and, and whether the market is enthusiastic about doing the show. And not surprisingly, a lot of people both outside of America, who can't get into America because of various border issues, and those within America, which is in a very fragile state right now at many levels, had a hard time imagining doing a show in December. In addition to which, we didn't know this for sure at the time, but we strongly suspected what proved to be true, which is that the U.S. government extended its lease on the Miami Beach Convention Center as a field hospital in case the ICUs get overloaded. And the way an art fair works in comparison with say a convention or something is that art needs to start moving a couple months ahead of time towards the fairgrounds. So a couple months ahead of time we had a situation in which was totally unclear whether collectors and gallerists could come to the convention center which itself was unclear in terms of being a venue for art and not a potential hospital zone. Obviously, this was not good news for Art Basel or for any of the galleries that had hoped to do this show. It's not entirely unexpected, and what it means in the short term is that we focus even more on the digital platforms and the other ways of connecting with the art world that we've developed in the last six months. In the long run, we still firmly believe that art fairs are the place where collectors will go to discover galleries and artists and where galleries will meet the collectors and other types of patrons who make their program move forward once we announced the news i was struck again by the outpouring of sympathy that we got from all over the world people know this is a hard time but on the other hand i think it's a moment where the art world feels really connected to each other and They know that this fair not happening in Miami is not just an issue for Art Basel but also for all of the galleries and all of the artists and all of the museums who've been working all year long to try to make things happen there. On a happier note, we're launching the OVR 2020 event this week on Wednesday and we had an amazing array of applications, 50% more than we could actually choose. It's only work from this year, but it has, you know, very, very young artists like Ludovic Knopf, for example, or Jabid Khalil Hofman, but also very established artists, people like Marilyn Minter, Anthony Gormley, Rick Richter of Anish. And it's going to be really interesting to see what's coming out of people's studios in this extremely surreal year. <laughs>
0: My thanks to Mark Spiegler for joining us for this week's edition of The Chiefs. We'll be back next week with more stories of success from C-suite leaders, chief design officers, and more. The Chiefs was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Louis Allen in Zurich. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening.